we were in Los Angeles, the temperature was over 100 degrees. And, you know, moving up and down those mountains, you rip through your water pretty quickly. And then it's like, okay, well, this is why they stressed in our training that we need to ration our water and, not, and, and take such good care of it. And I mention this because if we kind of put ourselves in this mindset, you know, of being in the wilderness and, and water's importance and perhaps not having any, it can give us somewhat of the mindset the Israelites had when we look at them here in Exodus 17. So they're in the wilderness. They don't have any water. Let's go ahead and read. Someone want to read verses 1 through, one through five, 4, nice and loudly. Exodus 17, 1 through 4. You, you want to read it, Johnny? Okay, really loudly, please. Camped at Rephidim, you're doing fine. All right. So you don't have to turn there, but Exodus 12, 37, because it seems they would generally number the men uh, ages 20 and above, says that there were 600,000 men. So then you kind of assume that many men, how many women, children. We're looking at probably three to four million people who are traveling around in the wilderness, wilderness at that time, based on that estimate from Exodus 12. And so the need for water for a group this size was going to be a, an immense problem. I mean, you just think of that many people traveling together, how much water they would need and so, was there anything wrong with them uh, wanting water or asking for water? No, definitely no problem with them wanting water, asking for water. The problem was in the way that they asked. It says that they what? Yeah, it says they grumbled or uh, quarreled or complained with Moses. They're very demanding. They said, give us water to drink. And so, although the Israelites probably thought that they were contending with Moses, as God's appointed leader... Moses, it's pretty evident that in contending with Moses, they're actually contending with, yeah, God himself, right? And so Moses responded that they were testing. So to me, I, the children of Israel kind of look like earthly children many times. And God, maybe Moses, but in particular God, kind of looks like this parent, especially during the time of the wilderness wandering, who's trying to be very patient with his children, but who continue to press and press until finally he's just... It, too frustrated with their grumbling and complaining. You probably felt that with your children, right? They're asking. You don't mind them asking once. They might not ask the best way, but as they continue to be pushy and quarrel with you, you feel yourself starting to flare up against them, and you're feeling like, okay, if you ask one more time, we've now moved from conversation to you being, you know, punished. I'm going to spank you. Quit, quit being so pushy. And so that's kind of one of the relationships that I see pretty frequently in, in uh, the wilderness, you know, parents and and child. So despite Moses's warning, they persisted. And what did they actually accuse God, perhaps Moses, but in particular God of? What was the actual accusation against God? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, consider the absurdity of it. They were accusing God of trying to murder them, of bringing them out of Egypt 
into the wilderness where he could kill them, and then I guess to make God look even worse, not only does God want to kill the adults, he also wants to kill who? The children and, I mean, he's such a cruel God, he also wants to kill who? Even the animals. And he's that terrible, he's going to murder, murder the animals too. Why is this such an absurd, considering the context, or considering what's transpired the last few months or years, why is this such an absurd accusation? Yeah, I mean, just consider his, his graciousness and delivering his, you know, strong outstretched arm and unleashing those plagues, working so powerfully and strongly on their behalf to deliver them from the persecution that they were experiencing at the hands of the Egyptians. It should have been so obvious, his care for them, and they bring this, they level this accusation against him that what he wants is actually to murder them. So they persist after Moses. So basically they demand water, Moses warns them, and then they persist and push through that warning and bring this accusation against Moses. Um, also, he parted the Red Sea. Previous chapter, you don't have to turn there, but this is when, the, when they had been given bread from heaven. So we're kind of the, I guess the chronology makes this, makes them look even worse, because when you consider that they recently started getting bread rained down from heaven, that was in Exodus 16, God looks particularly uh, gracious toward them. And so again, the, the accusation is just very outrageous. Now, someone want to read verses 5 and 6 loudly, please. Okay, I'll read it if nobody wants to. That's fine. So Exodus 17, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So my suspicion, I mean, I could be wrong about this, was that it grave gave Moses great confidence to hold this staff. Consider what he's already been able to do with this staff. He has to go before the people who at this moment seem to despise him. He's told to bring this staff with him, which he's already seen God perform um, miracles. Here's just a few I found. He turned it into a serpent back in Egypt. He turned the waters of Egypt into blood with his staff. He brought hail down. Uh, he brought locusts, and he parted the Red Sea. And one of the ironies of this is this rod that had served Moses so well is the same rod that he's going to use to get himself in trouble 40 years from now in the next account when he strikes the rock when he was not supposed to do that, when he was just supposed to speak to it. So kind of see if you notice, I'd like you to consider a contrast that, is re- that has taken place recently between the parting of the Red Sea and Moses striking this rock. The parting of the Red Sea and Moses striking the rock. So when he parted the Red Sea, he walks up to the water, he holds the rock over a body of water, and then this body of water becomes dry and allows the Israelites to walk through. Do you see how this event is basically the opposite of that? So first he's got this body of water that becomes dry. He holds this rod to strike this rock in a dry desert, and then the dryness is then turned into water as all this water comes out for the people to drink. So pretty interesting contrast between these two miracles. The other thing to notice about this is it was very testable. 
It was very testable. Moses is going to walk out, and he's going to strike this rock, and there's only one of two things that's going to happen. Either water's going to come out of it, or he's going to look how? Huh? Yeah, just absolutely foolish. Absolutely foolish. And so I really appreciate how testable miracles were in Scripture. There was no concern about whether the miracle had or had not happened, especially uh, even in the case with miracles. I mean, someone's lame and they've never walked, and you've known this person for years, and then suddenly they can walk. Um, you know, people are raised from the dead. There's this bread that's multiplied to, to feed thousands. And I guess that's one of the reasons I mention that is I think it is something we should keep in mind when we see individuals who claim to be performing miracles, especially false teachers or, or health and wealth people who would claim that that, that, um, you know, that back is healed. It's always very, un, I guess what I'm saying is this, it's always very untestable miracles when in scripture it's always very testable miracles. You strike the rock and water comes out or it doesn't, but you know right at that moment whether it's, uh, it's legitimate. But the miracles that many of the false teachers perform, and I'm using the word loosely, today are very untestable. And, and it almost, I mean, you can read accounts where the individuals of some of these healing crusades who are serving on staff keep the people who would have testable miracles from the stage so they cannot be brought forward. And, and then the individuals performing the miracles shown to be charlatans. And so just, just look for that. It just seems to me that God wants things when it's legitimate to be very obvious that it's legitimate, very testable. And that's what we see here. Moses is going to walk before the people, strike the rock, water's going to come out, or he's going to end up looking very foolish in front of this massive number of people that already seems are very frustrated with him and are accusing him of trying to murder him. Moses trusts God before the people, and the Lord provided, and then listen to this, Psalm 105, verse 41, recounts, He opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it flowed through the desert like a river. The water came rushing out, and then the people had... Are you pointing to me? Oh. Are things okay? Okay. I just, when your associate pastor motions, you give attention to that. And I thought he was pointing toward me, but... It... Okay, so... so because they didn't ask for water again until 40 years later when we look at the next account in Numbers, it seems to me, and I can't explain this fully, that God continued to provide for them through, uh, they didn't ask for water again, which lets me think they continued to have water and probably from this rock. This rock might have become a steady source for them through the wilderness. If I had to guess what happened, because I don't know that any of us know and anyone else is, is welcome to um, share their thoughts, I suspect he struck the rock and it broke, and maybe this rock had been shielding or covering some water source, and then the water was just released from beneath that rock and, and shot forth and provided for them. That's my best, my best guess, but I could be wrong. Maybe it, was, maybe it occurred some other way. Any thoughts or anything on that? All right. So if the people hadn't behaved so horribly, because if you if you think about it, it's a really wonderful, beautiful moment that could have been given as the location because it seems to be God's character to want things remembered. So names can be assigned to, um, you know, situations or locations where dramatic things have occurred. This could have been given some wonderful names. But instead, look in verse 7. 
names that would have reminded us of something positive. He called the name of the place Maasa and or Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And those names mean testing and quarreling to describe what happened and to rebuke Israel for their faithlessness. Now, keep this event, and here's the approach we're going to take. I'll probably talk about the application at the end because these two events are pretty similar. So we'll read through the two events, and then we'll talk about the application for us at the end, which we might not get to today. Now go ahead and turn to Numbers 20. And while you turn there, just to share something with you, we understand that some events are recorded in multiple places in Scripture. Obviously, there's the Gospels, where we see multiple accounts of Christ's earthly ministry um, shown from different vantage points. But it's not... Chronicles records the history of the southern kingdom of Judah. There are Chronicles of Israel, but those, the Chronicles of Israel is not in our Bible. So when you read Chronicles, you're reading the Chronicles of the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, in First and Second Kings, you have the record of the northern and southern kings of Israel. And so many of the events that you see in First and Second Kings are then retold, expanded on in Chronicles. There's also the account where the siege of Jerusalem, where um, the Assyrians came, and then the angel of the Lord slew, I think, 185,000 Assyrians. That's in Kings, Chronicles, and that's in Isaiah. So because events can be recorded, we might think that this is the same account because it looks so similar. And I'm just trying to be absolutely clear that what we're about to look at in Numbers 20, no matter how much it looks like Exodus 17, is a completely separate event from what we just read. In fact, these two events, Exodus 17 and Numbers 20, are separated by how many years? There's 40 years. There's 40 years between these two. The, just so you understand this, the, so the old generation is walking through the wilderness. They leave Sinai. Deuteronomy says that it was about 11 days. It could have been less than two weeks, and they would have found themselves in the promised land. So the Israelites leave the base of Sinai after they've been given the law, and they're heading toward the promised land. They get up toward the, the border of the promised land. Um, they could have been in there the next day, and in under two weeks from the time they left Egypt, they could have been in Canaan. But they sent in the spies, and then they experienced that rebellion. They sent in the 12 spies, and you guys know the account. They were in there 40 days. They, kind of similar to this, where they accused God of wanting to murder them. So the spies come back, and two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, give a good report that God can give them victory over all these enemies in the promised land. Ten of the spies, which just shows you probably the best example in all of Scripture, in my mind, of how easily faithlessness or unbelief can spread. I mean, if you think about sickness or disease, unbelief must be one of the most dangerous because it just spread through ten, ten, ten men could share with the entire nation, it seems, almost overnight— this bad report, and then the whole nation rebels, and only Joshua and Caleb could not even hold back that tide of of unbelief. So God says they're going to wander for 40 years. During that 40 years of wandering, there's not much record of what occurred, just to be clear about that. During that 40 years of wandering, so after the rebellion with the 12 spies, there's not very much record of those 40 years of wandering. The book of Numbers then picks up only a few weeks before they're about to go into the promised land. 
the new generation after the old generation had died. So they wander for 40 years so the old, rebellious, unbelieving generation can die, and then it picks up right when their parents, the new generation, who are adults now, are about to go into the promised land. Okay, any questions or anything? That should, I'm assuming that all makes sense, right? And I think the idea is that, in God's mind, these unbelieving people will not be able to go into Canaan and defeat these enemies. I will not be able to use them. I need to, I will bring their parents in instead. And so that's where we're picking up, where the children from Exodus 17 are now adults in Numbers 20. So, and this is when the rock is mentioned again. So we've jumped forward 40 years, and we also get to see the rock mentioned for the second time. Um, okay, look at me. Someone want to read? Or I'll go ahead and read. Nobody raised their hand last time, which is fine. So look with me at verse 1. The people of Israel, the whole congregation, they came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And if you pause there, I could be wrong about this, but I don't think that it, it only mentions Miriam's death because she was such a prominent person and, um, you know, deserving of being mentioned when she died. Perhaps that's the case. I tend to think that the mention of Miriam's death shows us that the judgment that the, that the nation would not enter the promised land was that exhaustive that even the sister of Moses did not. So when God pronounced and he said, none of the adults except for who? He said, no adults except for who will get to enter the promised land. Who was it? Literally, it was just Joshua and Caleb. Not only was it not Miriam, who else ended up not even being able to enter? Moses himself didn't even get to enter. And so here we get to see that Miriam didn't get to enter. She died in the wilderness. Verse 2, there's no water for the congregation. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or pomegranates, and there is no water for us to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And we can go ahead and stop right there. So, one of the reasons that the that people tend to think <clears throat> tend to think these are the same accounts is that the Israelites themselves look the same. They sound just like their parents did. And so it's very concerning that the new generation looks pretty much like the old generation and that nothing's really changed. But I think it just shows us that man's heart doesn't change. Man doesn't become better as we wait. We don't, we don't say, well, these people are really bad, but their children will be better. Or they're really bad, their grandchildren will be better. It just doesn't work like that. The only thing that allows change or growth in people's uh, lives is the, is the work of the gospel as the heart itself is changed. And because these people were unbelieving with their, like their parents, they look pretty much just like them. Now, the year is not given, but Numbers 33, 38 states that Aaron died on the fifth day of the 40th year after the exodus from Egypt. Let me say this one more time, just in case it sounds confusing. Numbers 33, 38 states that Aaron himself died on the fifth day of the 40th year after the exodus from Egypt. So Israel was going to soon enter the land. Also, the event with the 12 spies at Kadesh, where the Israelites um, find themselves again, so are back at that location. So one of the, one of the interesting um, situations 
is they're about, right now, we're about 40 years removed from Egypt, but the Israelites are also back at the exact same location where the rebellion occurred with the 12 spies. Now, my suspicion is that would have been a historic moment in Israel's history when that rebellion occurred. It was one that they would not have been able to forget. You know, they, the Israelites are heading through the wilderness. They think they're going to go into the promised land. Then they find out that they're going to have to wander for these 40 years. The whole time that they're wandering and not able to enter the promised land, they all must have known why that was. They all knew that it was because of the rebellion. They all knew that it was because of what happened with the spies. And they also would have known the location that that took place. So if you look, let me see here, where does it say? What verse is it? Look in verse 1. It says the people stayed in Kadesh. So they're right back where the 12 spies were sent out and that rebellion occurred. And I guess the reason that I'm mentioning that is I would just think that being back there at that same place that had been such a location of punishment earlier would have caused the Israelites to be on a little, little better behaved, right? You think they'd get back here and think, okay, we remember what happened when there was unbelief before. This place reminds us we should be good, and instead we see them acting just as rebelliously. Any thoughts or questions or anything? Okay. Yes, go ahead, Audrey. Yeah, so I appreciate what Audrey said. She was saying this is just a reminder of how sins are repeated and how uh, we as parents should, should strive to develop victory so the sins aren't passed along to our children. Am I capturing well what you're saying? Are we... And that we would learn from those that have gone for us. Yeah, so that trend would be stopped. Because there kind of seems to be this, there almost looks like a contradiction in Scripture because you can find verses that say children are not going to be punished for the sins of their parents, and then you can find verses that say children are punished for the sins of their parents. And you say, well, how can this be the case? So it's actually a pretty easily reconcilable dilemma. The dilemma is this. God does not punish children for the sins of the parents, but children do suffer for the sins of their parents because those children generally inherit or receive those sins themselves. Nobody would think that when there's a, you know, a drunk or abusive father that the children don't suffer because of that. So they suffer not because God punishes them for the, parent, for the father's sin, but they suffer because they had to experience that, the, the consequences of the father's drunkenness and abuse, and then also they probably received an amount of that sin themselves and then found themselves doing, doing the same thing. So that's really what's in view there, and we kind of see a good example of that here with this new generation. Okay, so this is a pretty good example of nobody really expe- escaping God's judgment. The old generation did not escape God's judgment. They died. Miriam did not escape God's judgment. She died, and in just a moment, we're going to see that even Moses himself doesn't get to escape God's judgment. He will end up dying in the wilderness too. So they ask for water. They sound just like their grumbling, faithless parents, even going so far again to accuse God of murder. 
as was typical with Moses, um, he would generally, you know, humble himself, intercede for the people. There was this compassion and graciousness from him as he'd fall on his face and cry out for their deliverance, but we don't see that humility and compassion um, through this account, and he ends up paying for it. So I'm not sure how far I read last time. How many verses did I read last time? Through verse 6? Let's pick up at verse, we'll start at verse 6 again. So Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take the staff, and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother. Now notice this. He says, tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff before the Lord as he commanded him. Okay, so what's the difference? Just in case there would be anyone that missed it, what's the difference between that previous account in Exodus 17 and this account? Yep. Yep, striking in Exodus 17, no striking now, just speaking to the rock. Verse 10, which actually doesn't speaking to a rock sound pretty bizarre? (laughs) It doesn't, many accounts in Scripture actually don't make sense unless you see them through the lens of typology. There are many accounts that are absolutely bizarre until you understand what God the Father wants to reveal about his son through it. Otherwise, you're like Abraham and Isaac. I mean, how troubling that's been to so many people if they think God just wants the father to murder his son with, unless you see Christ through it. And this is another account that if you don't see Christ, see Christ through this rock, then the idea of speaking to a rock, I mean, the only people that speak to rocks are crazy people, right? So you're not going to do that. But as soon as you see that God is, is providing great revelation of his son, then you see why he would have Moses do this. So verse 10, Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, this is Moses speaking, here now you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, wasn't even supposed to strike it once, he's so angry he strikes it twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So quite a bit to unpack here. So because Moses was uh, a mediator, and I, I don't think you should even think of like pastors and elders. Because to me, if you apply or you view me like uh, Moses or an intercessory person like that, my mind goes to the Catholic Church and then I'm like a priest. So if you were to think of someone synonymous with Moses, it would be more like the Levitical priesthood and their intercessory or mediating roles. And so don't, don't think that you would, you would know God through me. So kind of remove that from this. But there were individuals like priests, like Moses, who stood in these very uh, intercessory roles where people did know God through that mediator. They literally developed their understanding of God 
through what they saw in this intercessor. So that's why it was so important for Moses to represent God well. And how did he, how did, in this account, how did Moses make God look? If they knew God through Moses, how did God look to the people because of Moses' actions? Huh? He looks just angry, just furious. God didn't even tell Moses. He actually kind of did the opposite of what he was supposed to do. He's supposed to talk to the rock, but he talked to the people. He lectures them. He comes out. He calls them rebels. He chastises them. And that would have been a fine thing to say if God had wanted that. But for reasons that I don't fully understand, God wanted much grace shown. I would kind of think, I kind of look at how Moses acted here, and I'm like, yeah, tell them. You know, give it to them. They need to hear this. They've been, been so rebellious. But God wanted this compassion and humility shown so that they would see him through Moses accurately. And so Moses misrepresents God. He's angry here. The humility and compassion we normally see is lost. He takes the rod like he did 40 years earlier, supposed to speak to the rock, and he chastises the people and strikes the rock twice. God didn't want Moses to lecture the people. Um, he was supposed to continue the humility of falling on his face, crying out to God that previously characterized his leadership, but now the gentleness is gone. There's this heart of anger he's never shown, and he misrepresents God to the people. He makes God look like he's full of contempt for the Israelites. Now, yes, great, go ahead. No pun intended, yeah. Yes. Yep. Yes. Yes. Who he is, yeah. Yeah, he had a real lapse in judgment. I mean, we fail, and he failed at a time when he, you know, it was really unfortunate to have made it this far. I mean, my heart goes out to Moses. I just think he's such a tremendous man. I'm kind of grieved that, that this happened. He, it, it plagued Moses enough that he wasn't able to go in the promised land, that he continued asking God later until God finally said what? He said, don't ask me. Do not ask me about this again. So Moses had petitioned God enough, and I'm assuming pretty kindly to go. It had bothered him enough. So much had he wanted to go into the promised land. He kept asking God, I'm sure asking differently than the way the Israelites asked for water, until God asked him about this again. Don't bring it up again. Um, so that shows you how, how much this must have grieved Moses. But Audrey's looking at a really important point in this, that the, why, do you see why the word we is so bad? We was such a terrible word for Moses to use. And it was such a horrible word. Because Moses had water out of a rock as I do, right? Moses could, I could strike a rock and there would be as much chance of water coming out for me as for Moses. And so for him to take credit for this like he did 
So I guess if I back up, sometimes I'll look at judgments in Scripture and they just seem like ultra severe to me. And then other times they don't seem as severe as I'd expect. One example is like Uzzah when he reaches out to touch the ark. And then you kind of process why that was the case, that Uzzah had to be killed from touching the ark. And you're like, you know, now it makes a lot of sense because we're upset because Uzzah was trying to help. You know, David was upset that Uzzah had been punished so severely. And, but then you understand that if Uzzah had been able to reach out and touch the ark in front of all of the people who had attended the procession that day, God would have looked like a liar because he said if anyone touched the ark, they're going to die. God would have looked like he's not holy and that anyone can approach him. And so then you're like, wow, you see why God had to kill Uzzah right then. I don't think Uzzah went to hell or anything over his sin, but then you say, now it doesn't seem as severe. Now I understand God had to maintain his holiness before the people. He had to show that he's not a liar. Uzzah was a priest. He knew better than anyone how to handle the sacred and holy things. Other people like the Philistines touched the ark and it seems not be killed. Well, they couldn't look in it, but they could touch it and not be killed. But Uzzah as a priest had immense accountability. The other one like David. You know, David, I kind of look and I'm like, why wasn't he punished more severely? Saul loses the throne because he doesn't wipe out all the Amalekites, or actually because he offered a sacrifice he wasn't supposed to offer. Doesn't seem particularly severe. He loses the throne. David doesn't lose the throne. So sometimes it's kind of like, you know, I don't, I don't fully understand why God judges the way that he does. I trust that he's right. He knows best. Easily I can defer to him and let him work out all of these, all of these details. Um, one of the things last week that I really was, was struck by in, um, in the verses that I read in Matthew 10, think about this for a moment. God said that if the same works had been performed in the cities in the Old Testament that were performed in Christ's day in the Gospels, those cities would have what? I mean, that is, that's really a difficult thought for me to process. Because I, I tend to think people go to hell because they won't repent under any circumstances. To be told that they would have repented if those works had been performed there, I think, well, why, why weren't those works performed there then? I mean, if that would have brought about repentance in their hearts, why would, not, why would God not allow it to happen there? But I have to leave this with him. I mean, he knows best, and he apparently thought that they must not have needed those, must not have been worthy, I suppose, of having those works performed. I can't, I can't really process that. I just, I just was thinking, though, I can't believe that those cities would have repented if the works had been performed there, but they weren't performed there. Instead, they were performed in these other cities where it was evident that they were not going to repent no matter what they saw or heard. So just God's judgment, his way, it's like Isaiah, you know, 55, I believe. It is far above, his thoughts are not my thoughts, his ways are not my ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are God's thoughts and ways higher than my ways and my thoughts. I have to leave this to him because I can't, I can't wrap my mind around it. And in this situation with Moses, I do think we get some insight into why God's judgment is so severe associated with the word we. Moses took credit for a miracle that he had absolutely no ability to perform whatsoever. He took some of God's credit and glory, and he also did this. Here's God, and I don't have a hand, my hand's not long enough to go down to where Moses normally is, but then Moses went like this. He went, whoop, just like this, and Moses put himself on par with God, and he said, you know, we're the ones doing this. We're the ones who are caring for you, and so when you look through that lens, can you see now why God couldn't let Moses go into the promised land? What did God 
have to communicate to the people because of Moses' actions. He had to communicate, you are not necessary. I do not need you. This is not a partnership. We're, we're not a team here. You know, I'm the master, you're the servant. And so God had to show the entire— what if Moses had been able to bring the nation into the promised land? Then it could have continued looking like God needed Moses' help, or he was this really valuable asset. And so really clearly God showed everyone, no, Moses, you are not needed, you are completely dispensable, and everyone has to understand that because of what you have done here. And God says it's just as much. Um, the word holy, I've told you different times— I've tried, I've wanted to discourage you from thinking holy necessarily means moral or righteous. There are some, you know, there are some things that are holy that can be moral, like we're called to be holy and we're called to be moral. But holy generally means separate, and you should think in terms of that definition so you see separation. When you hear the word holy, you think set apart. And so right here, if you have that understanding of holy, you can also see why God's judgment against Moses was so strong because look, God says to him, you did not uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Well, what what God meant was instead of me being way over here and you and all the people being over here so that there's, I'm recognized as holy and there's separation between us, you went like this. You went and you just brought us together and you acted like you're very close to me. You, You did not hallow me in the people's eyes. So that was a really serious, really serious sin. So to reveal he didn't need Moses, he tells him he can't enter, can't enter the land. So they can see this chasm of separation between God and Moses. Um, one of the other th- reasons I think this was so, how, how long had Moses felt burdened to deliver his people? When, when do you get the first at Moses's heart to deliver the Hebrews or his people. I don't know at what age. I mean, I know there's movies that kind of show that Moses gets older and then learns that the Hebrews are, that he is a Hebrew. I don't know exactly when that occurred, but, it, but in Scripture, when do you get the first window into Moses' desire to deliver his people from their suffering and persecution at the hands of the Egyptians? That's right. Yes. So in Exodus 2, Moses goes out, he sees an Egyptian, who is beating a Hebrew, and Moses defends the Hebrew. He tries to deliver his people, and he ends up causing uh, considerable problems. Acts 7 records it as well, that he ends up having to flee. But how long ago was that from this moment? Almost 80 years, probably about 80 years. So for 80 years, it seems Moses has wanted nothing more than to be able to deliver his people from Egypt into the promised land, and he learns that he's not going to be able to do that. So I think that was a very terrible um, judgment for him to have to bear. And so sometimes people kind of look, and in, it's kind of this idea. In Mo- and when Moses, I don't want to say murdered, I don't think he murdered the Egyptian. I was having a conversation the other day about the difference between murder and killing, right? Like if someone, if a, if a, someone broke into your home and you defended your family and you ended up having to kill the perpetrator who is a threat to your children, that's not murder, the Bible forbids murder. It does not for, um, forbid killing. There are people in Scripture who were commanded to kill, but that's not the same as murdering. And so I don't think that Moses murdered the Egyptian. I think he killed the Egyptian to try to help one of his, one of his brethren, but he did it in his own effort. God hadn't led him to do it, and it causes considerable problems. So, so kind of the, he had to flee, 
God worked it out for good, but it was still problematic. But the contrast is this. In Moses' best effort, he could bury one Egyptian in the sand. But when God led Moses and he, and he worked through him powerfully, then Moses was able to see what buried? You know, the entire Egyptian army buried in the Red Sea. And so it just shows how much better things can go when we're, we're being led by the Lord. So listen to these verses in Hebrews 11. By faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Okay, now even just pause right there. What do you think it was like for Moses being the son of Pharaoh's daughter? Just a really extravagant, glamorous lifestyle. I mean, he lived in Pharaoh's home, I'd assume. It basically, whatever Pharaoh's daughter experienced, Moses experienced, which is probably to say, you know, whatever Moses' daughter or Pharaoh's daughter experienced is what Pharaoh was experiencing. So I think it was a life of, ex- of considerable luxury that Moses was able to turn from. So Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God, the Hebrews or Israelites, than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward that he had. And what's kind of interesting is it, you, you're told here that Moses was looking forward to who? To Christ himself. And we tend to think, well, you know, Moses wouldn't have known Christ. Christ wasn't back there. I think Moses knew Christ through type. I think Moses knew Christ through prophecies and knew him the same way that the other people in the Old Testament knew Christ. It was, it was veiled and shadowy compared to the way that we know Christ with the same clarity and revelation of his death, burial, and resurrection that the, the New Testament has given us. But those people in the Old Testament were justified by faith. They looked forward in faith to Christ's coming. They saw and they knew, they knew Christ through the types and shadows. There's one verse in, a, in the Gospel of John, I can't remember the address offhand, where Christ is talking about Abraham, and he says that Abraham rejoiced to see my day, And then you say, okay, well, that makes sense. Abraham was looking forward to Christ's day. But then it says, and he saw it. So Christ said that Abraham saw the day of Christ, not just looked forward to it. Well, how would Abraham have seen Christ? I believe he saw him through type when he sacrificed him on the altar. Hebrews 4, I think it's verse 2, it says that the gospel was preached to the Israelites in the wilderness. The gospel was preached to the Israelites in the wilderness. How was the gospel preached to the Israelites in the wilderness? Through what? Through the tabernacle, through the ark, through the sacrifices, through the bread that came down from heaven, through the bronze serpent that they could look to to be saved, through the rock in the wilderness. And through all these types, they came to know Christ and were able to look forward to him. Any questions or thoughts before we continue? Okay, so 40 years, he commits his life to bringing these people into the promised land. Now he finds out his life's work is not going to come to fruition. And then the account closes with these words. Look at verse 13. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. And so Moses would not show God holy, so God was forced to show himself holy by telling Moses he couldn't enter the land. So it just seems to me God is going to be glorified. God is going to be hallowed. 
if man doesn't do it or man works against it, then God is going to do it himself. And here, sadly, is one of God's greatest servants that had to be disciplined in the process. But even if Moses himself, whether it's David or whether it's Abraham, doesn't hallow God, God is going to be hallowed before the people. To me, it's just kind of an issue of, you know, are we going to be on his side when that happens? And so God did hallow himself. Okay, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 10. So we talk about Romans 8.28 and, Ro- and God working all things together for good. And I think sometimes we tend to think about maybe like trials or difficulties, and those are wonderful ways that God works things together for good. But I do want us to appreciate that many of the beautiful types of Christ in the Old Testament were produced or are, are good examples of Romans 8.28 in action. Here's what I mean by this. There's been so much sin and rebellion that we've talked about up to this point. There was Exodus 17 with the people crying out, grumbling against Moses, or grumbling against God, contending with him. Then there was the rebellion of the 12 spies that we talked about, and then there was the rebellion again in Numbers 20 with the people crying out, and then Moses's uh, sin itself. But from all of this sin and rebellion, God is still able to produce this tremendous picture or type of his son, Jesus Christ. And it becomes evident for us here in these verses. One with me. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud. So he's talking about the Israelites in the wilderness when they were under the cloud and then the pillar of fire as well. And they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So primarily about Christ being with Israel in the wilderness. We, we tend to think Christ came in the Gospels. This is what I would encourage you to uh, think or believe. Christ came in the Gospels physically. That's when the incarnation took place. But don't ever think that's when Christ had his beginning or that's when he started ministering to people. We see here that Christ is, you know, back in the wilderness with the Israelites, feeding them, nourishing them, I would say spiritually speaking. So to interpret the verses correctly, look at the repetition of the word spiritual. Look at the repetition of the word spiritual. So Jesus wasn't like, uh, let me read it again so you can see that. Look for the word spiritual as I read this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. So we're not talking physically here, we're talking spiritually. They're all under the cloud, the cloud that led the nation and never left them. Here's the verses about it. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud, to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. So God's presence was there with them as they traveled. They could, they could be comforted by him. I'm assuming the cloud blocked out the hot sun. Perhaps the fire at night provided some, some warmth for them. 
And the way the cloud led the people and never left them, it looks to the way that Christ, as the head of the church, leads us, and he never leaves us. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, Matthew 28, 20. The cloud, it revealed God's glory, and it represented his presence with them. Exodus 16, 10, as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. Exodus 24, 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So when they were seeing the cloud and the pillar of fire, it wasn't, I'm assuming it didn't look like other clouds or other pillars of fire they'd seen before. It was a revelation of God's glory. It was a way for God to glorify himself among them. When the tabernacle was constructed, Exodus 40, verse 35, Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So you see this transition. First, Israel was brought from Egypt to Sinai where they encounter the glory of the Lord on the mountain. They construct the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord, or the cloud, but I can almost say it synonymously, the Shekinah glory of God in the, shown through the cloud transcends from the mountain down to the tabernacle. It's so bright and gleaming, they can't, the priest can't go near it or enter it. And then they construct the temple, and the same thing happens where there's that transition from the tabernacle to the temple. So each of these situations allowed the people to have access to God or to see his glory. Um, when the temple was constructed, 1 Kings 8, 11, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So the cloud revealed the glory of God and the representation of his presence, looking forward to the way God would truly reveal his glory and be present with his people at the incarnation. So I'll close with this. I do, I do want you to be able to appreciate this. The glory, the glory of the Lord that was on Sinai, following Israel with them through the Old Testament, is the glory that became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's the transition. That's the thread you follow. Here's just probably the clearest verse for this. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So that glory that follows Israel through the wilderness, available to them, takes on flesh, at the incarnation in the New Testament and becomes a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So we can go ahead and um, close there. Are there any questions before I pray? All right, Father, we thank you for this time and I pray that as we continue to discuss this type next week and probably the uh, week after with the bronze serpent, that you would give us affection for your son and help us to see him through the Old Testament. We thank you for the revelation given there. Bless the uh, fellowship time that follows for the next 30 minutes and then go with us into the worship service, Lord. Thank you for this wonderful day you've given us and the, and the um, friends, the family, the fellowship, time together, and most importantly, the privilege of being able to worship your son. We pray these things in his name. Amen.